Would you pray with me just one more time? I just feel especially weak. Father, I feel weak. I feel distracted. This morning has been nuts. Um, And uh, and Lord, I, I know that in my weakness, you can show your power. And we can rejoice that ultimately it's not me that does the work or singers or anybody who's serving up here on the stage or even any of us here but it's your word that does the work, your spirit that changes lives. And so we, we just cast ourselves at your feet and say, Lord, do what only you can do. Strengthen my voice, though, I ask, Lord. It feels weak and <clears throat> hope threw up last night and mom, mom's at home and it, it just feels off, which is good because this passage is for a people who are off, a land that is off, a land that is in deep darkness. And so we need hope from this passage this morning. So work Work in us through this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. If you grew up in church or you've been around church, you've probably heard this passage before. You've heard this said. It's in my bathroom right now on a little cute Christmas $1. We got it the day after Christmas last year. Um, little plaque. And, and, and I grew up hearing that, and it just kind of means nothing to me now, to be honest. I don't know if any of you guys feel that way, but it's a, it's a line, and, and if, that one of the, the, the dangers of growing up around church is that you can hear certain lines over and over again that becomes, you become inoculated to it, desensitized. So the words just are just kind of like white noise in the background. And as I studied this passage, I started to get at times angry and frustrated, hopefully in a righteous way, because as I studied the context of chapter 9 and this beautiful line that, that we've heard in, in many hymns and we've heard over the years, I started to get angry because I was, I was like, why has it, haven't I ever heard how good this passage is? Why haven't I heard the context of how sweet and, and how, uh, how glorious and gracious this passage is? And so as I was studying, I just got full of excitement to share this with you, and, and hopefully this, this verse, this line that is so known will have fresh meaning to you, and not just fresh meaning to you, but fresh transformation and hope and encouragement for you this morning. So like every time we read the Bible, we never want to read a verse. Never read a Bible verse. You always want to read the context, because the context shows the, the power and the purpose of the verse we're looking at. And so to actually understand chapter 9, we're going to actually go back to chapter 8, since we're doing this mini-sermon series on Isaiah. Most of you may not be familiar with what's going on in Isaiah. To pick off with a little bit of what Pastor Ross said last week, Israel is in a civil war. So imagine north and south, like back back years ago, and that's still going on, and, and each side is, is making political pacts with other nations to gang up on the other person to get the upper hand. And unlike it is in, in the West or in the States, war for us is not imminent. You don't wake up every day wondering if you're going to get bombed or wondering if you're going to get invaded. But that was the reality for Israel at this time. They were in a constant state of, of, of probably anxiety and worry because invasion was right around the corner. But despite the treacherous, crazy times they were in, they were actually kind of doing well financially. Well, at least some were. You know, as you guys all know the phrase, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, um, the, the wealth gap was significant in this time. There was no middle class. You're either you're really rich or really, really poor. And the rich 
enjoyed their life. And, and they, uh, one scholar, D.A. Carson, talked about how they had this controlling capitalism. While they, the rich got richer and they would abuse the poor with their power and their money. And, and, and many would, would not even have places of, uh, to live. Now, one passage I want to highlight, it'll be on the screen, is Isaiah chapter 5. This gives you a little glimpse of the kind of spiritual slumber the people were also in. This is going to be out of the New Living Translation. I'm going to be in the NLT a lot because it's going to help make something clear uh, so that I don't have to unpack it as much. So just a heads up on that. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11. What sorrow for those who get up early in the morning looking for a drink of alcohol and spend long evenings drinking wine to make themselves flaming drunk. They furnish wine. And lovely music at their grand parties, lyre and harp, tambourine and flute. But they never think about Yahweh or the Lord or notice what he is doing. Like two weeks ago when I preached on the days of Noah and Christ coming in, in the gospel of Luke, this reality was happening then too. They were drunk, not only physically drunk and intoxicated, but they were spiritually drunk. They were spiritually asleep. They were not awakened to the realities of God. They ignored him. Israel was full of idols. Over the years, the faithfulness of the early fathers was lost, and now they were full of idols from other nations. Get a little bit of an idol from this nation to help with their crops. A little bit of help from this idol to help with having babies. A little bit here to help with so and so and on and on. And they were full of idols. But yet, despite all of this, we see God's heart towards them. What kind of heart would you imagine God would have against such an unfaithful people? Would you look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6? It's so sweet. You can hear the compassion and the tenderness of God dripping off the page. My care for the people of Judah is like the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. But they have rejected it hear that there's a there is a heart there's a care for his people but they have rejected it and one of the greatest signs of the rejection of God is the rejection of his word instead of listening to his word I want I want to, I want you to see what they listen to they would li literally listen to the dead look at chapter 8 verse 19 if you're looking in your bible Isaiah kind of mocks them for them going to Instead of going to God for counsel, they go to the dead. Look at verse 19. Someone may say to you, let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead with their whisperings and mutterings. They will tell us what to do. But shouldn't people ask God for guidance? Should the living seek guidance from the dead? Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. The, the insanity of this situation. Israel, among all nations, the only one who have access to God's word, only one who have access to truth, are instead of receiving this gift that God has given, rejecting the gift and going and opting to get sorcerers and, and uh, mediums to, 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 to get voices and words from the dead. The insanity of the situation, they reject the living God for the dead. It, when your heart is hard towards God, you will go to anything sometimes before you go to God to get life, to get help, to get counsel. There's a desperation and that just shows you the hardness of hearts. Now as a result of rejecting God 
God puts them under punishment, under discipline would be the, the right word. And so the people are starting to suffer. They're starting to struggle. They're not being able to party like they used to. They're feeling the press of war imminently around the corner. And what would you think a people who are under discipline would do once they start being disciplined? What should they do? Well, let's see what they actually did. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21. They will go from one place to another, weary and hungry. And because they are hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth. But wherever they look, they will be in trouble and anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. Do, do they return to God? No, do they, do they repent? No, no, what is that line? It says, they will rage and curse their king and their God. See, a common reality for a hard heart, a heart in rebellion, is instead of owning that your suffering and your punishment is self-induced, we actually reverse it and blame God for the very situation we walked ourselves into. How, how many of you guys know what that's like? How many of you done that? I've done that. God, how dare you? I mean, I, I did this, but you should have helped me, or you should have stopped me, or you should have providentially, Calvinistically just stopped me from doing this stuff, right? We can blame God for the very things that we put ourselves into, and you see this in the very heart of the people. They're raging against God. Remember, the, there is no neutral heart towards God in the world. There's a soft heart and a hard heart. There aren't like, oh, you know, I kind of feel good about him, but I'm, no, no. When, when your heart is darkened and hard towards God, there is a rage against God. There's a rebellion. There's a rejection. Do not think, do not fall under the, the pluralistic, relativistic spirit of our age that believes that you can have a neutral stance towards God. So this is the kind of evil and darkness God's people are living in, wallowing in, as we move into chapter 9. And so as we get this context, you're going to start to see that the people that are in darkness that God is rescuing are wicked people, are people like us. And with this in mind, let's go into this deliverance that God is going to give, this gracious deliverance in chapter 9, verse 1. So we're finally back into chapter 9, so hopefully that context was worthwhile. This, this first word, nevertheless, is an important word. Despite all that I just said, despite all the heinousness and the unfaithfulness, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Isn't that beautiful? In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. What is this word humbling? This word humbling, in your translation, it may may say brought low or, or something like that. In other words, God disciplined them. And often to get our, get our attention, to waken us up. I love how I, I, I snap and some of you guys are like, oh. And in order to wake us up, sometimes God has to bring his people through a, a season of discipline to waken us up to spiritual realities because we are spiritually slumbering. And so he brought them low for a time. But nevertheless, There'll be a day where there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. And if you're in this room right now and you feel gloom and distress, hopefully that makes your heart just perk up just for a second. There will be a day where there'll be no more gloom or distress. And then he will bring honor. Not just limited to the Israelites, not to only God's people then, but all nations. This, this phrase, 
Galilee of the nation by the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan. You're going to see later in chapter in, in Matthew, but this picture that it's going to be for all peoples. God's gracious promise to bring life, to bring healing, to bring wholeness is going to be for all peoples, not just Israelites. Now look at verse 2 with me. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It's such a beautiful verse. But when you typically hear the phrase, if you're like me, you hear the people walking in darkness, it can sound kind of like they're just poor victims. Oh, these poor people in the dark. If only someone will bring on some light. And that's true. In one sense, every person, even the worst sinner in this world, is a victim in some level. But also, everyone is also a culprit. And there's a danger, especially in our culture, to magnify one over the other. But I don't want to get into that right now. But if you remember in the context of chapter 8, the people who are walking in darkness walked into that darkness. They brought about the darkness. They, they rejected God's word. They rejected his rule. They opted for other gods, lowercase g, gods. And they brought themselves into this state of darkness. And so when you think about this passage that a great light has shone, don't have your mind just, just blind, darkened people in this dark room who are just pitiable. No, they're wicked people who are raging against God. Their hearts are set against him. They're blaming him for everything that's going wrong in their world. And in this kind of context, in this kind of darkness, light has shone. Do you see how that changes this verse a little bit? It's no longer like, oh, God's kind and he's going to bring light to to pitiable people. No, no, he's bringing light to wicked, undeserving people. It changes everything. This is the mercy of God shining upon a merciless, undeserving people. Now, how can they see this light? What does the passage say? Light has dawned. I don't care how hard you look. If you're in a dark room and there's no light, you cannot see. You can't. You can't manufacture light if there's pitch darkness. And the people of Israel were in deep darkness, and yet God mercifully, graciously shines light upon them, and they see this great light. So although in the order of the sentence they have seen a great light comes first, when you look at the logic of it all, the only way they can have a sight to see this light is because God shone light upon them. And that just gives us a glimpse of God's grace towards us. The only way you can have light shine in our dark world is if God shines his light upon us, and he indeed has through Jesus And we're going to get into that a little bit more in a few minutes. These people are in the passive passive position. They're receiving this light. Now, what are the results of this light coming into this world? Three results that we're going to see in this chapter. Joy, freedom, and peace. How many of you guys want some of that? Joy, freedom, and peace. Our world needs joy, freedom, and peace. And those are some of the results of this great light coming. So look at verse 3, would you? with me. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. These are the results of light again. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. What kind of joy? A kind of joy that comes after laboring for a long season, hardship, sweating, struggling, 
and at the end of it yielding a great crop, that kind of joy, or the kind of joy that warriors feel after a long war, epic battle, lots of losses, lots of pain, lots of struggles, lots of frightening nights, sleepless nights, and at the end of it, a victory where they have spoiled, that kind of joy. This is, this is a really high level of joy we're talking about. That's the kind of joy that comes with this light. And this light that comes into deep darkness also produces freedom. Look at, the, look at this verse 4 back in the NLT, would you? For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. You see this powerful language? Break the yoke of their slavery. Lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. Break the oppressor's rod like Midian. Do, do you guys remember Midian? Does that sound familiar for those of you guys who've read your Old Testament lately? <clears throat> do you guys remember Midian? Midian was the, was the nation that was um, ruling over Israel during the time of the judges, one of the times during the judges. Do you remember God raised up this nobody, Gideon, who was super timid, super doubtful, the least of his people among, his, among a least tribe. God raises him up, has this great army, and then the army's too big. He said, this is too big. You guys are going to take glory if you win. And he whittles it down to the original 300. Greater than every mo any movie or any Greek battle, 300 men. <clears throat> and they don't even fight. They literally just like hit, break pots and yell and blow on shofars and trumpets. And the people of Midian and the campsite go nuts and start killing each other, and they win this great battle. 300 versus tens of thousands. Incredibly epic upset. Unexpected, improbable, impossible from small situation. And that's what God does. If you read throughout scripture, this is what God does. He frees people from oppression through the most unexpected means. Small means, means that you would never imagine. Now, speaking of oppression and slavery, when you read throughout the Bible, you see political oppression everywhere, and that's real. Systemic oppression is real, which is something that is, is talked a lot right now in our culture, and in many ways, rightfully so. But what we're going to see as we keep going through this text and what we see in the Bible, the greatest oppression is slavery we have, not to people, not to systems, but to sin. And the reality is, for you to discount that there's systemic injustice in our world today discounts the reality that sin is alive. Because what are, who, are, who rules systems? Systems are full of sinners and led by sinners. And so, of course, you're going to have sinful systems in our world. But if you want to solve the injustices of the world, you have to get to the root of the problem. And we're going to see that this light that comes is actually going to get to the root of the problem. So let's look at the next, ver next line. This light will also bring peace. Would you read this from the screens? Because my voice is going. You hear it? It's going. So let's, let's get some water. Would you read with me? Verse 5. The boots... Why? why? Why would you burn this stuff? What, when would you ever burn something that you, that, that, that you need? Well, when you don't need it anymore. 
If you retire from something and you like burn up your whatever, your, your uniform, you're like, Dad, why are you burning your uniform? Because I'm retired, baby. I'm done. And that's the same thing that's going on here. They're going to burn up their, their warrior uniforms, burn up their boots, because they're not going to have war anymore because peace would come. And not just like a peace, because every country throughout history has times of peace, times where the enemy recedes. But this is a kind of peace that lasts so much so that they can have confidence, they can just burn everything. (laughs) That's amazing. So many talk about world peace. And especially if you you are from a war-torn nation, or your parents are, or your immigrants, you feel these realities a lot more than many of us in the West who haven't experienced war in in a number of decades. But imagine complete and utter peace. Peace nationally and peace with neighbor. That's amazing. There'll be a day where no beauty pageant person would say, world peace, right? That just won't happen anymore because it already happened soon. But how will God accomplish this great feat? What would you think you would need to bring about such joy and freedom and peace? What would you have to do? What kind of army would you have to muster? What kind of plan would you have to have to bring about this kind of global joy and freedom and peace? Well, look at verse 6. For to us, Let's let's read it together one more time. (laughs) Would you read with me? For to us. I don't know if you caught the absurdity of that passage because you've heard it so much, you just kind of get into this white noise mode because you've said it over and over again. But listen, a child is born. (laughs) Isaiah is listing all these things that are going to happen in the world. And then he uses the word for. And this word in Hebrew, key, is just a causal. It it means that all this will happen because of this. This will make all this happen. This is the ground. This is the foundation that any of the freedom, joy, and peace can happen. And what's the ground? A child is born. Can you imagine that? You imagine a, a war room sitting there. Okay, how are we going to bring peace and prosperity to our land? People are saying, oh, what about a new weapon? Oh, oh, wait, wait, what about a new policy? What, what, what about a new legislation? What about this, this? And someone's like, let's have a baby born, right? Do you see how absurd and how unintuitive that is? But that's what God does. He brings, to, to end the cruelty and the brokenness of the world, he he. He does it through a baby. It's insane. Let that freshly waken you up to the absurdity of God's ways. God's answer to heal this oppressive, hostile, and cruel world is not to come as a warrior king, but as a child. A baby born in the way babies are born, vulnerable and small. Throughout the Bible, you're going to see this over and over again. God uses the weak things to bring about his purposes which is really dangerous for us in America because we, we forget that. And we think if we have more power, more political power, more people who are Christians, oh, did you hear that new actor? He's a Christian. Oh, now we have power and clout. Right? We, we just, we're so enamored by power, but we don't realize that the kind of power the Bible talks about is subversive power. It's power through weakness. Can I get another amen from that? Yeah, some of you guys are like, oh, I don't like that, Sam. 
Give me that power. Give me that political power. And notice that the word here is given. The child is a gift given by the father. A gift from a father, undeserving, gracious gift. Remember, gifts aren't earned. They're not required. A true gift shouldn't have strings attached. This is a gracious gift. And remember the context that we looked at in chapter 8? These aren't like a deserving people. There wasn't some great revival that broke out in Israel where God was like, okay, well now I'm going to give you this Savior. Now I'm going to bless you because you earned it and you worked for it and you're good enough. No, no, no. In In light of their wickedness, especially in light of their wickedness, God gives this gracious gift of his son. Furthermore, you see, the child will have the government on his shoulders. Uh, when I hear that line, I just kind of like, eh, I don't, I don't, whatever, whatever that means. But, but I was just trying to think about it. What would that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, I'm sure. Consider this. It's not like a president. In our nation, we have a government where if your president dies or steps down, your government will still go on, right? Right? Believe it or not. Trump, Trump supporters or Biden supporters, if, you, if your guy leaves, the government will still go on. There's another person still. But, but in this government, it's all on his shoulders. You remove this son, everything falls down. Everything is built on this son. And he has big shoulders. And he can bear a lot of weight. And he holds everything up. And in keeping with this passage, there will ultimately be no joy, freedom, or peace without this king, without this child. Everything hangs on this child. Now, what is this child like? What's the nature? What's the character of this child? Look at, let's keep going. What's the first? Wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. This is one I, I don't think I've really meditated on. I think one of the greatest underrated reality of of God is his wisdom. He's so wise. I mean, how many of you have given bad counsel before? Yeah? How many of you guys have received bad counsel? Yeah, all the time, right? Unsolicited many times, bad counsel. God never gives bad counsel. His wisdom is perfect. He's so wise, and I need to hear this because Guys, I can be so arrogant sometimes, and I can judge God, and I can doubt God because he doesn't run this world the way I think he should run it. You guys ever do that? God, if you should do this, or if I were you, I would do this, and yet God doesn't need your advice. He's a perfect counselor, perfectly wise in all his ways. And and this is good news because if you had a God that was all-powerful like our God, the God of the Bible is, but not wise— he would wield his power foolishly. You need a God that is powerful, but also wise. And also God that is loving, that will direct the heart of the actions. Also, we see this word mighty God. Interesting, this child is called mighty God? What's that? One scholar notes that every single time mighty God is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to God himself. This child is born and a child, and yet all these things that we're seeing. This incarnation that we'll talk about in a minute is truly a mystery. What's the next line? Everlasting father. <laughs> the child is also a father. Okay, that, that's weird, right? This, this child is so many things. This child is the father to his people. And, and, and I'm sure you could read Trinitarian realities here as well. 
And finally, you see this beautiful line. He's the Prince of Peace. Can you guys just say that with me? Prince of Peace. I love that. I love that. He's going to bring peace to the world. And at the end of this message, we're going to look at that peace more carefully. But hear these phrases again. He is the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. This, these, this is the kind of leader we long for in our world, right? We want this kind of leader who are these things. And this is the king that we need. And this is our king that we get in the Bible. And this is the king that we have. Now, what will this kingdom be like? Let's look at verse 7. Would you read this out loud with me? Actually, you're going to read it while I drink. That's beautiful. Well reading. Well done reading. This is another popular phrase that you have probably heard growing up. Have any of you guys heard this growing up? All good things will come to an end. Anybody? Did anyone say that like in your home a lot? Well, yeah, it's good. It's a bad thing. Don't, don't say that. So I'm glad you didn't get that. But, but I've heard that growing up. But what does this passage teach us? Not in our case. The best thing that will ever happen will never end. His kingdom will never end. This is, this is in keeping with the promise of the, the Davidic king. If you want to look at the screen, but if you're taking notes, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. This is David speaking. Or is it God speaking to David? When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise you up, raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This, this language here makes clear that Isaiah probably doesn't have in mind like the next king, but, but an end times kind of king, a king that will come that will bring a global reality, that there may be kings that will come in the temporary that will bring these realities in part, but the fullness is yet to come. And what ways will this king rule? With justice and righteousness. Take back the word justice from our culture. It's a biblical term. Use that word, church. Jesus will reign with justice and righteousness. We've got to understand what that really means. Don't overly read into what I just said if you guys are visitors, because I know there's a lot of nuance there that I don't have time to give to. Who is the Lord of hosts? What's this term? You may have heard that, or in, if you have an NASB, it says Sabaoth. This is a phrase describing Yahweh's role as the commander of heaven's armies. It's a powerful term. A warrior who fights for his people. So if you ever wonder this day will come, if you are struggling and suffering right now, you are in that despair and that gloom and you're walking in that right and you're like, when will this ever come? And if you doubt that God can do it, if you doubt God will ever relieve you from this pain and the temptations will stop, hear this. The Lord of hosts will do this. And that Lord of hosts, like I said, is a powerful warrior term. You know you can bake on him to do it. He's got the power and the authority to bring about these realities on this earth. Now let's zoom out of a context in Isaiah and see how Jesus brings light, freedom, and peace. All right. The Gospel of Matthew helps us see this, that light has come in Jesus. So uh, Matthew, 
quotes this passage. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Would you read this with me? Verse 13. Matthew shows that the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is not an impersonal light, but a person. A light. The light is Jesus. How does this light come? Jesus walks in the darkness. He takes the darkness all around him. He steps into our reality, puts on our flesh, and he comes as a person. God with us in our darkness. Reject this notion that God is unfeeling, impassionate, distant, separate. No, 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 no. He gets your struggle, people. There is nothing that you have ever struggled with that Jesus does not acutely understand deeply, sympathetically, empathetically. He's walked into those realities. He knows what it's like. He steps into our darkness. And this light brings joy. Joy has come in Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 2. I'm going to just start flying through this because there's so many cool things. Luke chapter 2 verse 10. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. John chapter 15 verse 11. I have told you this, is Jesus speaking, this so, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete or full, brimming. Joy is what Jesus brings. Joy is what the light brings. This light also brings freedom. Would you read this with me? John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews, reading. If you're visiting, I promise I don't, I read the scripture normally, and I don't drink a gallon of water up here. The the voice is going. This voice is going. Um, I said this earlier, right? There is many things to be free from in this world. Many oppressive systems, regimes, realities. Maybe you have a bad boss, whatever it may be. But the greatest Slavery is slavery to sin. And Jesus comes and goes to the very heart of the matter. He comes to the very root issue of all of our issues, disarms it, and gives us liberty to walk in freedom from sin. Not perfectly, but truly. And in one day, fully. In this light also comes peace. Jesus brings peace, will bring global peace. Look at this beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. I love it. Yahweh, the Lord, will meditate, mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. 
They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Kind of like our chapter. What does this mean? Well, why would you turn your sword and your spear into gardening tools? When, in what situation would it ever be prudent to take your weapons to protect your family and protect your nation and turn them into farming tools? Well, when there's no need to protect your family, when there is a global peace between nation and neighbor where there's no need for weapons anymore. Is that good news? There'll be a day where there'll be no weapons. I'm sorry, gun lovers out there. Your weapons will not be needed one day. Maybe Jesus will make you a firing range sometime, but, but you don't need it one day because there'll be no more danger, no more violence, no more harm. This is the kind of global peace that Jesus will bring. What a day. But anyone who wants joy and freedom and peace, I mean, everybody wants joy and freedom and peace, right? But if you come to Jesus for joy, freedom, and peace, you won't get joy and freedom and peace. If that's why you're going to him. What? Yes, joy, freedom, and peace comes from a true living relationship with Jesus. But that is not why you come to him. Those are the beneficial, the blessing, the gracious results of knowing him. Being forgiven by him. But you come to Jesus because you want to get right with God. You need to be reconciled with Father. Because us, we are very much like Israel. We are in darkness. We have darkened hearts. We're in this gloom. And until God shines his light on us, until we surrender our control and surrender to the light, we won't have peace with God. And we won't ever have joy, freedom, and peace. And I think this is really important because so often our evangelism in our churches and the way we relate to people to come to Jesus, oftentimes we emphasize, and it's not bad all the way, and sometimes the scripture does this, but it can't be the main thing we focus on. Come to Jesus because you're sad. Come to Jesus because you're addicted and you need to get free from addiction. Come to Jesus. All that stuff is good and true and all that stuff will happen if you know Jesus truly. But that can't be why you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus because you want to know God, because you want to be right with God. You want to love God. Are you, are you guys tracking with me? Am I offending you? See, before you can have peace in this world, true peace, you need to have peace with God. In fact, the only way there ever could be world peace is if there's first peace with God. If you don't get the vertical right, everything horizontal doesn't matter. So how does Jesus accomplish all of this, this insane, amazing promises? Well, the gospel, that's how. The king rescues the people in the most absurd, surprising way. Jesus delivers us from the darkness by taking darkness upon himself. On the cross, Jesus takes all of our sin and suffering, and he is treated as if he is the cause of all that sin and suffering. And the Father pours out wrath upon Jesus, the innocent lamb on the cross as if he did all those things as if he's the cause of all the problems in the world he treated him as if he was sin himself and he absorbed the punishment he took the punishment that you and i deserve so that those of us here who repent believe and are baptized can walk in this freedom this joy and this peace in this forgiveness but it could only happen if you repent and believe and be baptized, if you trust in Jesus, if you give up your control. 
This is the kind of God we're talking about. This is the king, the king that comes as a baby and doesn't come to be a conquering king at first, but comes to be slain for us like a, like a, like a, like a criminal. Do you see the subversive nature of the gospel, the insane, absurd plan of God that he takes the king and, and kills the king? This is weird. This is unprecedented. This is the God that we have. You can have this son, this king today, but you must repent and be baptized. And if you're not sure you have peace with this God, please, please talk to someone today. Now, church, let me finish with saying this. Right now, we are living in the already not yet. Jesus has come. He has come and he will come again. But until he comes again, we are experiencing freedom, joy and peace and life. But it's dim at times. We still struggle. We still sin. We still stumble. We still have doubts. We still have pains. We still fail. But one day the fullness will come. So in Isaiah's day, they're waiting for the first coming. to make. To, in the first coming, Jesus is going to take care of all sin. And then for us here as the church, we're waiting for the second coming where he's going to take care of everything. Finally. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. And so Christ has come and he will come again. And so church, as we wait for, as we celebrate Advent and wait for Christmas, let your heart long for the day where Jesus comes back and true freedom, joy, and peace will come. And that only comes through a child. Only comes through a son that is given to us. And so would you say with me this line, Christ has come and will come again? Christ has come and will come again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and, then, and we'll continue to worship. Father, what a gift. Thank you for giving the gift of Jesus. We're undeserving. We're so grateful, but we're not so grateful at times. So I pray that our hearts this Christmas season would warm like a raging fire towards your son. Fill us with a fresh revelation of your, the kindness and the, the craziness, the insanity, the absurdity of Christmas and the kindness of your salvation and your rescue for us. Lord, we all want freedom and joy and peace, but we know that without you, none of that will come. So we say, come, Jesus, hasten your day. Help us be waiting for that day, looking out for that day. Help us not get so caught up in our temporary saviors to give us temporary freedom, joy, and peace. Lord, we reject those temporary measures because we want the everlasting freedom and peace and joy that comes in you. And if there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord, let them come. Let them come. Let them come to the son that was given for them. And Lord, if I said anything that was in error from this word, would you correct me? But everything that was true, let it deeply form us and change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.